Well, um, you can you can think about just how the it has been the focus of presidents since shortly after World War II to try to solve the issue of peace in the Middle East. Uh, many times a president is is evaluated by did they do anything in this area. And I think part of the answer to the question of why is it so hard to broker peace in the Middle East, I think part of that answer lies within the fact that the people of that region understand covenants. They understand what an agreement and a treaty would mean. A covenant is a legal relationship or a partnership or a treaty between two people. But a covenant has incentives for fulfilling the agreements and it has penalties for breaking the covenant. Recall that God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. This would be around uh, 2,090 years before Christ's birth. And, and he made a covenant and a promise to him that he would make Abraham into a great nation. And the descendants of Abraham were the Hebrew people would be through his son Isaac, through Isaac's son Jacob, through Jacob's 12 sons who that I'm not going to name and became the 12 tribes of Israel. God's covenant with Abraham, if you should want to study that more closely, we've mentioned it at different times. You can see that in Genesis 12 and 15. It was a literal, eternal, and unconditional covenant. Their relationship was totally due to God's initiative and faithfulness to his word. After bringing Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, he made another covenant with them. This covenant involved the giving of the law through God's prophet Moses at the base of Mount Sinai. The law of Moses represented the contract requirements placed on God's people. They're best summarized, that law, in the Ten Commandments. Let's look back at a, a moment with the people of Israel as they entered into the covenant of the Mosaic Law. Here, Moses sacrificed a lamb for the people. He's poured some of the blood onto the altar of sacrifice. And then we pick it up here in Exodus 24, verse 7. It says, Then he took the book of the covenant, that, which, that would be the law, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now I want you to notice in this that this is a different covenant than the unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. And as we see and as we talk about Israel's failure to keep that covenant with God, know that his covenant with Abraham, his promise there was still the foundation of his relationship with those people. And that's why he, he did not turn his back on his people. 
because even though they broke this covenant of the law, he still fell upon his promises to Abraham. But in many ways, the law, you could say, is, is like duct tape, right? Duct tape is good for everything, except for taping ducks. I don't know if you ever noticed that. It's good for everything except for taping, taping ducks. In a couple years, it's dried out, fallen off, peeled off. So I don't even know why they call it that anymore. In the same way, the Mosaic law, legalism, is good for everything except for making you righteous. It's good for conviction. It's good for reminder. It's good as a guide. It's good for everything except for actually allowing you to keep it. But notice here Israel's statement, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So 40 years later, Israel is about to enter into the land promised to them in God's covenant to Abraham. God restates his covenant with them and includes incentives of blessings and penalties of curses. The pinnacle of the penalty for disobeying the law would be their removal from the land. We read this in Deuteronomy 28. It says, And the Lord will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth to the other, and there, shall, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Where we've been studying in the book of Daniel is the future result of Judah's disobedience. The carrying out of this penalty of being exiled from the land. But there was a promise of restoration for God's people if they would repent. In Deuteronomy 30, we see a promise that while they're living under the penalty of disobedience, that they would remember God's promise. It says in Deuteronomy 30, verses 2 through 3, And return to the Lord your God and your children and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered. This was the promise of restoration to them as well. So we're here in Daniel 9. And we find Daniel interacting with God's supreme rule as it had to do with this timing of restoration of his people. We're going to be learning about repentance for restoration today. We're not going to be learning everything having to do with repentance. We're going to be learning what Daniel 9 sheds light on in terms of repentance. I can remember um, taking, Kelly and I taking our, our girls when they were real little it's just the four of us at that time. We didn't have our boys yet. And, and um, we took them to get their pictures taken. And uh, Micaiah, as, you know, I think three years old maybe, 
I mean, just round and cute and, you know. Um, sorry, okay, I'm, I forget she's in here. <laughs> um, so, anyways, the photographer is trying to position her hands. And she's okay with one hand. The other one she's kind of keeping close to her. And her fist kind of balled up. And she's like, okay, well, we just need to open this hand here. What, what, what? And it's kind of like, what do you have going on here? And she opens up her hand, and she's got a little um, bead, like a, a translucent, you can see through it, pink or purple bead, a plastic bead. And I, I can't remember if it was Kelly or if it was a photographer. She was like, what do you got there? And this is, your ladies are going to be like, oh. This, and she says, it's my Zool. My Zool. In order to get her hands to put be put the way that they wanted to, the the Zool, the jewel, had to be taken away. You know, if I were Micaiah and I was convinced that this was a priceless jewel, I would never let go of it. I would have been have to be convinced first that it's not worth holding on to. I would need to understand that there's something more valuable than this shiny piece of plastic, namely your mom getting a good picture to send to people. No, but I would have to be convinced there's something more valuable than this thing that I'm holding on to. This is how it is with repentance. Repentance is a turning away from what is worthless, wrong, and harmful and a turning to what is worth more than gold. To what's right and brings life. At its beginning, repentance is a change of mind. I know, it's, I know the evidence of repentance is a changed life. But in its beginning, it's a change of mind. We can see this in the definition here. And as I read back over this, I was like, boy, this is a definition like what Spock would give you. It, says repentance a change of mind also can refer to regret or remorse accompanying a realization that wrong has been done or to any shift or reversal of thought in its biblical sense repentance refers to deeply seated and a thorough turning from self to God it occurs when a radical turning to God takes place and an experience in which God is recognized as the most important fact of one's existence. Now, how I would adjust this definition is I would say where God is recognized as the most important relationship of one's existence. But as we discuss repentance today, really what we're saying applies to both initial repentance and repeated repentance. What I mean by initial repentance is that repentance, that change of mind that takes place when a person realizes I cannot save myself, I cannot earn my way into a relationship with God, I have to come to Him on a righteousness that's not my own. I gotta change my mind on this. I gotta look for a righteousness that doesn't come from within me. And the person realizes I need the righteousness of Christ that's been offered to me and the payment that has been made by him. And that, so that's what I mean by initial repentance of a person coming to Christ as their Savior. 
But it also applies to repeated repentance, where we change our minds and realize, this thing I'm pursuing, what am I doing? At w- w- what I'm holding on to here is not worth the cost of what I'm paying in my relationship with God, in my relationship with other people. And having that change of mind and realizing, I need to open my hand and let God take this away. Okay, so both, that's what I mean by what we're saying here applies to initial repentance of coming to Christ as our Savior, but it's also a repeated life of repentance as we grow in Christ as our Savior. And we grow more and more into the image of Christ. So Daniel 9 for harvest this morning. We're gonna, you can see in the notes that are in the bulletin that our, our principles, like last week, are kind of intertwined in the observations that we're making as we move through the, this half of this chapter here this morning. We're only going to verse 19, so you're going to be like, oh. Um, but Daniel 9 this morning is because of God's new covenant in Christ, we are free to deal rightly with our sin and live for God's glory. Because of God's well, I, I, it's different up there. Look at that. Look, because of God's covenant through Christ or new covenant in Christ, we are free to deal rightly with our sin and live for God's glory. From the beginning of Daniel 9, we find Daniel driven to prayer. And this is where we are as we look at these first three verses of, of Daniel 9. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And we covered last week that Darius is a term for many uh, rulers that were ruled under the Persian Empire. So if we look for Darius in the history books, we're not going to find a man named Darius. But we know that this would have been the first year of the Medo Persians taking over Babylon. Now, if you remember what we looked at in Daniel 5 last week, that was the last night of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar as is, and his empire is wiped out by the Persian army and now we move into chronologically the next thing going on is Daniel 9 in the first year of the reign of this son of Ahasuerus he's a, he's a Mede but he's in the Medo Persian Empire and Cyrus the Persian king is his overlord or his, his uh, superior in this this would mean that it's also Cyrus's first year to reign in Persia and thus the whole empire and you would see then from other places in scriptures that this then would be the year also that the children of Israel are allowed to go back to the land of Israel funded by Cyrus the king and we looked at that last week at the end of our look at Daniel 5 so we find Daniel to be studying the scriptures written by the prophet Jeremiah. Someone asked me um, just before the service today, you know, a great question of, of how did Daniel grow while he's in this pagan empire surrounded by all this idolatrous practice 
you know, how is he staying strong? And we see right here in the first verses of Daniel 9, he had copies of the scriptures. He speaks of the prophet Jeremiah, if you'll notice, as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. He's growing by staying connected to God's word. We'll see in Daniel 6 about his prayer life. But so, so we can assume he's reading passages from Jeremiah, like Jeremiah 29.10. These are predictions um, from the prophet of God, Jeremiah. So, so these are predictions of God through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29.10 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Read in Jeremiah 25, 11-12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, talking about um, Israel. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Daniel has witnessed as you recall, the punishment of Babylon. So he knows that God's people's exile is ending soon, having read here in Jeremiah. He also knows that God is interested in seeing his people repent, as, as was promised back in Deuteronomy, that if they would only repent and return to him, then God would bring them back and restore to them their fortunes. So Daniel is feeling some hardcore conviction here, walking around basically in burlap, with ashes on his head, a sign of sadness um, and remorse. I want to mention, before we move on here, that God's word is intended to be responded to. You know, if I come here ready on Sunday morning to worship, to worship in praise, to worship in preaching, it's because... His word is filling my heart and my mind. Sometimes I can't wait to get up here and preach. And it's not because he's doing something necessarily, you know, unique. I mean, obviously it's unique, but it's not like I'm sitting there getting ginned up from the, from the music. I'm ginned up from, from spending time in his word during the week. As I mentioned, I think I am the most blessed by the book of Daniel of anybody here because of just the time of being able to spend in it and, and the opportunity to come and, and preach and knowing that you'll stay until I'm done. And that's significant. <laughs> so I have his word working inside of me. I figured you probably needed to leave. Oh, yes, that's right. Perfect timing, though. I, so I have his word working inside of me and needing to come out of me as a preacher. And I'm okay with that term. I used to not be. But I want to ask you, do you spend significant time in God's word during the week? Do you? You're not come here ready to praise him. If you're not 
in his word during the week. Plain and simple. We don't have a philosophy of praise and worship here that makes it the people's responsibility up here to get you in some sort of a mood. That is a work during the week that God should be doing. And you should come here ready to praise Him. That, that's what we see going on. and We're making that application because we observe that going on in Daniel's life. So as Daniel, um, we will not be driven to pray as Daniel was driven to pray. Allowing his truth, God's truth, to drive him there. The fact is still true. Sin will lead you away from the Bible. And the Bible will lead you away from sin. Sin will lead you away from the Bible. And the Bible will lead you away from sin. But it's not because it's God's word. It's because of the God of the word. That he will work. So that's what we see in Daniel's response of repentance. Beginning with confession, this prayer. The prayer of corporate confession. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Now we recall how Daniel has has remained an upright servant of God, even in this land that's hostile to God. Why is he repenting? You might ask. Well, first of all, he's humbly repenting for his nation. This is a common practice in the Old Testament. Um, It's a common... Remember, God's covenants were with them as a nation. Um, We can see also the covenant relationship in Daniel's description of God. God does not break his covenant relation of of steadfast love with those those he enters into covenant with. He doesn't break that. Daniel is is depending on that covenant as as he prays. The covenant that Daniel was praising to God on the basis of was the old covenant of the law. They were promised blessings if they obeyed, if I mentioned. And as I mentioned before, they, they agreed that they would be exiled if they broke their covenant with God. They were promised blessing of restoration as a people if they repented. Daniel was praising God for his steadfast love in the fact that he would restore Israel if they repented. You can say that true confession is a symptom of a truly repentant heart. It's like the unblemished skin of a fruit is, is, is evidence, a symptom of a good piece of fruit. As we read in Daniel's confession of his sin, his heart of repentance is shining through. And this brings us to our first principle that we're drawing out of this passage of Daniel 9. And that's that repentance is based on God's covenant with us. As I mentioned, God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, steadfastly loving God. Daniel is praising him and appealing to him on the basis of his promise in his covenant, specifically his promise to restore his people upon their repentance. God is working according to the covenant today, a different covenant, though. 
He's working according a different covenant, not the old covenant of the Mosaic law. It's a new covenant. And we've looked at this before, but if you don't have this underlined in your Bible, I really want to encourage you to turn to it and underline it. Here in Jeremiah 31, this is another prediction. You know, 650 years prior to the coming of Christ, Jeremiah wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He continues on in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, as I was talking with this person about Daniel's challenges that he faced in not having a body of believers that he was gathering together with, and, and we, we don't know that. Maybe, maybe there was a group of faithful Jews that Daniel joined with. But there's also another challenge that Old Testament saints had, and that was that we don't have really time to go into this. But Acts 2 had not happened. The Holy Spirit had not been given in that way. The Holy Spirit did not indwell God's saints in the Old Testament the way that he does today. And that's part of what Jeremiah is promising would take place in the new covenant. That's part of why he says, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. That's part of why he says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord for they all shall know me. He's saying, everyone that has a relationship with me will know me because I will indwell them. This is the new covenant that he's promising. So in accordance with the Old Testament law, the people of Israel were to make sacrifices for their sins. Recall that the old covenant in Mount Sinai was created with the blood of a lamb that Moses sacrificed. The killing of the animal was the pleading, was the placing of a guilty person's sins on something that was innocent and sacrificing it. So Moses, the, the sacrifice that Moses made with that one animal for the nation was a, a, a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement means bringing sinners into right relationship with God. Our English word atonement is what it is because we've, we've made it into the term at-one-ment. Atonement. At-one-ment. To make one again. The new covenant between God and mankind also required a sacrifice of atonement. The new covenant we're talking about here. Between God and man, this sacrifice had to be made. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper the way that we do. That's why Jesus said on the night that he was sacrificed for us, remember Moses took the blood of the lamb and said, the blood of the covenant between you and God. And I know we've mentioned this before, but this is why Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. My eternal blood. 
my almighty godness in this flood. It was an inauguration of the new covenant. Like a boat being christened with a bottle of wine, the new covenant was christened with the cup of Christ's blood. And this is what we celebrate. We celebrate at the Lord's Supper that we are in a new covenant with God. And He works with us through that covenant, just as Daniel is appealing to God based on His covenant with Him. There's a man that I read about uh, in the Philippines named Felix um, Pardillo. I know I just killed that name. But a man of 60 years old, he was a Filipino farmer. And he had been saving his money for decades in order to finally be able to buy a donkey, a work animal for his farm. He finally saved enough, and he found the animal that he wanted to purchase. But unfortunately, he did not know that the government had switched. He, he lived in such a remote area of the Philippines. He did not know that the government was in a, a process of switching over the former Philippine currency to the new Philippine currency. And the window of time for exchanging that currency had closed, and his money was now useless. So in 1975, he sent a letter with the help of some schoolboys to the president of the Philippines. This would be President Marcos. He needed the help of the schoolboys because he didn't know how to write. The answer came back and said, the law must be followed because the deadline for exchanging bills has already passed. The government can no longer change your bills with the new one. Even the president of the Philippines is not exempt from this rule. The letter didn't end there. It says, however... Because I believe that you really worked hard to save this money. I'm changing them with new ones from my own personal funds. And I hope that you will be able to buy your donkey. The letter was signed, your friend, Ferdinand E. Marcos, president of the Philippines. We can exchange our legalism of the old covenant with the grace of the new covenant at the expense of Christ. That's what it's about. The legalism of the old covenant law says, keep making sacrifice for every sin you commit. You must make it up to God. You get to work for it. You must work for it. Get to work. We can live under this legalism and it makes our relationship with Him a burden that we think we have to carry. That we think we have to carry. The grace of the new covenant says the final sacrifice has been made for the sins of all mankind. You can never do enough to deserve it. So work for God out of gratitude and love for what He has done upon receiving what He has done. Receiving the Lord as your personal Savior. By dwelling on all that we have in Christ, we then should respond with love and obedience. So getting back to Daniel's prayer of confession for the nation of Israel, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, 
the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and Lord. Daniel breaks out every term he can think of, I would imagine, for how his people has broken their side of their covenant with God. One writer says, Daniel ransacked the Old Testament vocabulary as he describes Judas' failure to obey. He goes on, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Prophets of God throughout the Old Testament were used like prosecuting attorneys in pointing out the sins of the people in breaking God's law. It's like a person being brought to trial, convicted of their crime, and then having their sentence suspended is what Daniel goes on to describe. Daniel points now to the people's ignoring of one merciful delay after another without listening. He says, To you, O Lord, brings, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery, that they have committed against you. To us belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers belongs because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. Notice how Daniel contrasts God's righteousness and his and his people's sins. So even though he's praying for his people, don't get the idea that Daniel did not need to also repent. Any degree of sin is condemning in the presence of the holy God. This brings us to our second principle from Daniel 9. And that's that repentance begins with the confessing of our sin. Repentance begins with confessing sins. Daniel said, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, he says in verse 7. To us, in verse 8, our Lord belongs open shame because we have sinned against you. First, let's define confession here. Confession means to this is the dictionary definition, to acknowledge, to admit, to agree with. It's often translated, the same term is often translated in the Old Testament as give praise or give thanks. In other words, it's to say, yes, Lord, you are good. I praise you because you are good. I agree with you. Or, yes, Lord, you have provided this. I agree with you. You have provided this. So I give you thanks. It's the same word as confession. In the sense of saying, yes, Lord, you are good, and I am not. I have done this. I thought it was good, and it is not. And you said that it wasn't good, and you're right. Confession is agreement with God. Confessing sin is an act of admitting that God's standard is right, and that we far, fall far below God's standard. And this is why he says, to you belongs righteousness. To us belongs open shame. 
It's admitting that our character falls short of the glory of God's character. This is why Daniel goes back and forth stating, God, you are right, we are wrong. This is why in coming to Christ as their Savior, that initial repentance, a person must realize God is righteous and I am not. There is nothing that I can do to earn this relationship with this righteous God. That's why confession is a part of the initial repentance that God brings a person through in order to know Christ as their Savior. In dealing with sin between individuals, Proverbs tells it this Oh, I'm sorry. The psalmist writes it this way. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So when he says, I confess, he's saying, I agree with you. I acknowledged it. Here in the Proverbs, in dealing with sin between individuals, Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. James 5, 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, this isn't saying that confession to a fellow believer somehow deals with our sin or deals with it in a completely way or achieves forgiveness from the Lord, especially for, for a person that, that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. It's a way of getting serious about dealing with sin. Many of us are familiar with 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. As stated earlier, this deals with both initial repentance and repeated repentance of a follower of Christ. This verse applies to the admitting of sinfulness, which allows a person to come to salvation in Christ alone. A person is forgiven on their believing that their sin was paid for by Christ's death and resurrection. Otherwise, as this verse is saying, they're calling God a liar. And basically that he wasted his time. It also refers to a saved person's admitting of specific sins and agreeing with God about them. It allows a person to live in the full benefit of their fellowship with God that comes with forgiveness. Parents know of the situation, of the frustrating situation of a child saying, sorry, begrudgingly, right? Say you're sorry. Sorry. It's not a true repentance of wronging the other person, right? True repentance begins with confessing that I am wrong and you are right. A man named Robert Smith said, True repentance is a, has a double aspect. It looks upon the things past with, weeping, with a weeping eye and upon the future with a watchful eye. It looks upon the past with a weeping eye and upon the future with a watchful eye. If you're in a healthy cycle of repentance because you're not... It's because you're confessing, verse 1. If you're not in a healthy cycle of repentance, it's because you're not in the process of confessing. 
You need to pray for the blessing of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. When you experience the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, you will start to see the discipline of God in your life. And we'll, we'll touch a little bit on process of healthy repentance at the end there. But, but this process of reviewing God's discipline is what Daniel sees. He says, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses and the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against it. Speaking of God, says he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us the the great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Daniel is referring to the fact that Israel was removed from their land as a punishment. He's attributing the situation that the people are in to their own sin of disobeying God. He continues, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord, our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has been brought upon us. So he's referring to the process of God sending his prophets and saying, you need to turn from this. When he says, we had not turned and entreated your favor, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight. That process that they just kept kept going deeper and deeper into sin. Maybe repent a little bit and then just dive deeper into it again. He's referring to that and he's And then that's why he says, Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has been brought upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done. And and we have not obeyed his voice. We've spoken a little bit in the book of Daniel about the end time. And that's going to be a large part of next week as well as we look at the 70 weeks of Daniel at the end of Daniel 9. But you'll recall that much of the book of Revelation foretelling the end times is God pouring out what? What? Wrath on this earth. Do you know that this earth, as it was with the nation of Israel, the world itself is in this process? Not entreating the favor of the Lord their God. Turning, not turning from their iniquities, not gaining insight by their truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept great calamity and has brought and will bring it upon this earth. It's being stored up. Why? I'm so grateful for the fact that I will not be here. But anyways, we'll hit on that next week. So we see Daniel's appeal for mercy is one of beautiful repentance and intercession. This is in verses 15 through 19. It says, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have, done, and have made a name for yourself as it is, as at this day we have sinned and have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, 
Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. We see in verses 15 through 16 here, Daniel is asking God to end his righteous discipline of his people, to bring an end to it. But verses 17 through 19, Daniel is asking God to take merciful action. It says, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Notice there, and I'll refer to this again, but he says, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy for your own sake. He knows that God is out for his glory. All of Daniel's appeal is summarized by a final blitz of pleas for God to act and act quickly. It says, O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O oh my God, because of your city and your people are called by your name. The goal of Daniel's appeal is the glory of God's reputation among the people of the earth. This is in agreement with God's goal for his creation. This is what should happen when we agree with in confession of our sins. When we agree with God, we should find that we recognize and agree with God's purpose for his creation. His glory becomes our focus. It becomes a matter of, Lord, whatever you've got to do to me, let me see you be lifted up. This leads us into our third and final principle here. Oscar Wilde said once, No man is rich enough to buy back his past. No man is rich enough to buy back his past. The person that lived the purest life you can imagine is not rich enough to buy back their past. When it comes to the sins of our past as well as our future, no man has enough righteousness. Repentance is based on God's righteousness. Notice Daniel said, O oh Lord, according to all your righteous acts. Not, Lord, look at what we've done. Look, I've, I've, I've you know, weaved enough good works. Is, does, won't this get us back into the land? According to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name in verse 18. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. I appreciate the way the NIV Life Application Commentary describes this principle here. Just this quote here up on the screen says, While we must repent of our sins, again our relationship with God is not based on our ability either to keep the law or even to keep up with our daily repentance. Why? Because our faith is not built on our good works of or obedience, but rather on the work of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect law keeper. 
He is the only one who never broke the law. But he is also the one who died on the cross because of sin in fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial practice. Jesus is our substitute. This is what is meant by 2 Corinthians 5.21 when Paul writes, For our sake, he being the Father, made him being Christ, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I, I went and watched a Southmont junior high basketball game good game this uh, this week and um, there was a, um, a kind of a comical thing that happened on the court and a girl from the opposing team committed a foul while she was on offense okay and and their team had fouled a lot so the they were in a place where any foul they committed sent the Southmont girls to the foul line to the free throw line okay you know, I, that's the best I can do explaining that. Um, so um, this sent them, they committed the foul over here at the away side, so it sent them down to the Southmont side to shoot the free throws. And I think that this was probably, I'm explaining that because I think that was probably part of what confused it for this girl who had committed the foul. Um, when all the players went to the other end, the girl who had committed the foul was standing at the free throw line. And she's getting her foot ready, and she's waiting for the ball. And the person that was fouled against was kind of standing behind her like, that's my spot, you know? And um, soon she kind of realized everybody was looking at her, and she was like, wait, I committed the foul. I don't belong here. And it was, it was kind of funny, and she was a little bit embarrassed, and I felt for her, but... You know, I got excited in my geeky theological way here watching this. And I leaned over to my daughter, and she was just like, what are you talking about? I leaned over, and I said, that's imputation. Meaning, that's our relationship with God through Christ. Christ's righteousness was imputed. That's the term. It was imputed to us. This means that even though we are the ones who have sinned, God gives us His Christ's righteousness. If you've received Christ as your Savior, you should be convicted of sin. Because, but you are able to come to God and confess because you stand in the righteousness of Christ. You are the one who committed the foul. But yet you walk into his presence like there's nothing wrong in your life in terms of relationship. But there should be a missing of fellowship. This isn't a license to sin. We should be sensing a, a break in that, in that fellowship with God. It's based, the basis of our freedom is this, that we stand in God's righteousness and we can come and we can turn away from that and we can come and, and find that fellowship with him again. Now, I just want to mention just three things that struck me. I, was, I came across this this week and I 
I realized this is, this is so true, and it's just three words that are a process of healthy repentance. Because while repentance is initially a change of mind, repentance leads to a change of life. But I don't think it's fair to say, well, if your life didn't change, you didn't really repent. I don't think that's fair. But repentance needs to be the initiation of a process. And I just want to give you three words to help you to understand what makes repentance stick. Okay? The first is repentance. Okay? That's easy enough. The second is replacement. You can see this in Ephesians with put off and put on. And the same with Colossians. We must put off and we must put on the truth. You see this in Romans 12.1. No longer be conformed but be transformed. You see this in Romans 6. No longer present your bodies as, a, as, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God. So there needs to be replacement of what was wrong with what, was, what is right. And, and I've you know, got to be careful. I'll break off into a whole new sermon here. So I'm just giving you that word. There needs to be replacement of what was wrong with what is right. But then the third one is repetition. They say you have to do something for either 31, 30 days or, or 20 to, 21 times in order for it to become a habit. Now, obviously, God has done phenomenal things in bringing just lightning strike repentance into people's lives and hearts um, and, and made it so that they never want to go back. But the, the normal process of the way he works with us is that repentance needs to be needs to move into replacement of what was wrong with what is right and it needs to be added to with re repetition and that's where accountability is so helpful and and where getting counsel is so helpful is in that replacement what what is it here that I keep going back to this to this sin what is it that I need to, re to pull that out I, I want it out I've confessed it to the Lord. I recognize this is wrong. I'm in repentance. Repentance. What do I need to replace it with? That's where seeking godly counsel is so helpful. And in accountability is so helpful to that repetition. I want to get into a habit of this. I want to get into a habit of this. And so that's where that is. So that's those three things. Repentance, replacement, and repetition is so strong. And, I, you know, I'm not a big... You, you would know, if you sat here for a while, I, I don't give a lot of invitations and things, but with, with the message from God's Word this morning, just as we are singing this morning, I just want to tell you, some of you, you might be like, this is the last nail in the coffin for you. Is it like, you might be like, okay, Lord, I hear it. I'll get rid of it. I'll stop it. You have been hounding me. I mean, not angrily, but you're just like, and when you know it, you're like, yeah, why? Why have I been holding on to this? Why am I want to keep going with this? What? I've been an idiot. And you, you just want to drive a stake in the ground, drive that final nail. I, whatever that needs to be for you this morning, as we close in worship, um, if you want to come up here and pray, if you want to find another brother or sister this morning and say, I need help with this.
you need to just kind of say to your wife or to your husband, you need to go talk. Everybody will just think you need to leave early. Nobody will think anything of it. Just feel free to leave and go and talk. Um, but this morning may be a huge morning for someone here of, of realizing I either need to come to Christ as my Savior, maybe, or um, I need to get this out of my life. I can't tell you what it is, but if, it, if you're going through it, you know what it is. Uh, so I'm going to close in prayer, and the guys are going to come forward. And, and um, I just want to challenge you with that this morning, to not ignore that this morning. Father, um, my words seem so uh, powerless compared to what needs to happen in our lives, what needs to happen in order for us to, to really know a close walk with you, to, to turn away from those things that we're holding on to, Father, that if we could only realize how worthless they are, uh, that we would let go of them and walk in a deeper relationship with you, walk in obedience, and feel the fruit of that obedience, feel the restoration of relationship, feel the restoration of a fellowship with you to be able to, to talk with you and, and not have that thing hanging over us. Lord, I don't know. Um, I, I, I feel a little foolish right now. Maybe Maybe you're not doing anything, but... Lord, I just would pray that you would... If this is someone's day today to come to repentance or to come to Christ, that you'd even just twist their stomach right now, Father. Um, Lord, we, we love you. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercy on us. I pray these things in Jesus' name.